Hello, happy Halloween. <laughs> my name is Rachel Iba, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to what promises to be a very spooky evening tonight at Disney Hall. Um, in honor of our film tonight, John S. Robertson's 1920 Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. I decided to dress as a flapper, kind of the original hipsters of the 20th century, if you will. Um, and I'd love to start our segment by inviting up our wonderful soloist, Clark Wilson. Clark is one of the most celebrated scorers of silent films living today. He is the resident organist of the Ohio Theater. He is a professor at the University of Oklahoma, teaching courses in silent picture scoring and the history of American theater organ. And he travels all around the world performing this music alongside films. He's been here many times on Halloween, and we are thrilled to welcome him back tonight. A big hand for Clark Wilson. There you are. Thank you. Oh, like she said, happy Halloween. It's a great <laughs> horror evening. And it reminds me of the first time I played here and we did Phantom of the Opera and at the top of the program there was a picture of the Phantom and at the other side there was a picture of me. <laughs> the one on the right is me. Wonderful. So Clark, I was hoping you could kind of paint us a picture. What would it have been like to see this movie in 1920s in, in one of the picture palaces? Having known some of the people that scored these films originally, unfortunately, I'm old enough to do that, um, they said back, at the, back in those days, and whether it's a commentary on society or just the innocence generally of, of, of things, they said, you never saw anybody like this out on the street walking around. So when they unmasked the phantom or when Barrymore you know, wound up looking like this, this horrible elongated skull and the... Uh, the vampire type character, people screamed and fainted. And they screamed and fainted in the, in the aisles and they kept trained nurses around the theater and so on. So it really was an excursion out there. It's hard to re remember that prior to a couple of these early 1920s films, there was no such thing as a horror film, so to speak. Right, yeah. And even though this doesn't class 100% as a horror film, it still was pretty chilling for the time and still is. Oh, absolutely, yeah, one of the original films of the genre. And I know, um, obviously, you've played on the Disney Hall organ a number of times by now. What, um, how different is this organ from uh, the original theater organs of the 20s? It's ironic that we play on this instrument, and of course, this is one of the most iconic and well-known and fabulous instruments like this in the world. And it's, it's a, an incredible treat to play on it and just have anything to do with it. It's ironic to think that the theater owners at the time were struggling to get away from this kind of a sound, though, the concert organ sound, and into that Wurlitzer organ, ooey, 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 tremulated sound and so on with xylophones and bells and whistles and sound effects and everything. But I think, as good as those instruments are, and they were, they're superb, that's what they were created for, when it comes Halloween time to do one of these pictures, like this, and you've got the gamut of resources available to you as we have down front with those 32-foot stops that roll your stockings up and down and so forth, and you can go from the, literally that whisper that you can hardly hear to that thunderous full organ that just sets you back in your seats, it doesn't get any better than that. 
Oh, I can't wait. Yeah, are you going to be up in the loft? or? No, we do this down front on the remote console, so I'm able to actually see the screen and do all the queuing that way. Yeah. So everybody can see me as well. Yeah, and I'm dying to know, I think there's a common misconception with silent films that the organist just comes in and improvises for an hour and a half. I mean, and so I'm so curious, how much of what you'll be doing tonight is improvised? Maybe you can explain to our audience what cue sheets are. In the 1920s, when they were doing this, and it was mostly organists that did this, really, in the picture theaters, over 10,000 uh, theater organs and 20,000 people playing them by the end of the silent era. When these pictures came around, uh, to many of the theaters, especially the smaller ones, they changed the title of the picture three times a week. And Mondays, and Thursdays, and Saturdays, or whatever. So imagine yourself the musician in any of those places with the manager marching down the aisle with 140 pages of new music for Metropolis tomorrow. And you're supposed to read that at sight, not make any mistakes, make that organ sound good because we paid a lot of money for that instrument, and don't miss any of the cues. Well nigh impossible. And so they came up with a system, cue sheets. And uh, these were four pages, six pages, eight pages, just of bits and pieces of songs and suggestions of what pieces to use in the score along with uh, the, uh, the title of the piece and also the author, the composer of the piece. The timing was listed for each scene and the highlights, the cues, were there, hence a cue sheet. And so you would go down in the basement to your music library and you would dig out these pieces or something right similar along the lines of those that might work, work better for you, uh, perhaps better in your locale, whatever the situation might be, and you would put your score together that way. So, in proper cueing, the backbone of the score was created out of genuine good music from the masters. The improvisation part was simply used to link those themes together. But the idea, except for maybe in very short comedies, the 20-minute shorts, 18 minutes of Laurel and Hardy, where things happen too fast to write out any sort of music, really. You just need to go with it. That's more than the average musician or even the above average musician could produce night after night, picture after picture, year after year to come up with an inspiring score on the spur of the minute. And believe me, the cue sheet also helps. It's, as, it's your roadmap to keep you moving forward with those themes so you don't get stuck playing three blind mice over and over and over and over again because I can't think of a way out of this. You remember that recital when you were a little kid and you couldn't remember the ending of the piece? Same idea. <laughs> so you'll be using a cue sheet tonight. Yes. And do you create your own? I'm so interested in the, the process. Do you watch the movie and take notes? How do you make your exactly. choices? Exactly, and of course in this age of DVDs and things online and so on, you can watch these films as many times as you need to. Another thing that the organists of the day weren't able to do in advance, the first screening was usually the first screening, the first time yeah. they had seen it. So yes, you go through and you note the action, the important cues, the important things happening, and then you begin to get ideas of what to put with the picture. This is assuming that the original score doesn't exist. Right. for it, and you're not able to come up with the exact uh, thing. 
and then you develop that. Usually I'll do it a third or fourth time, just, just mentally doing timing, humming those pieces and so on. And uh, then you'll write out the cue sheet and then take a stab at it and see how it all works. Yeah. And usually the sixth or seventh time through, it's about time for performance. <laughs> Although sometimes it's longer than that. Sometimes it's much yeah. longer for a big feature. And does what you play vary from performance to performance? If we're following you around the world, trying to catch all of your movies, uh, we'll it's hear something different each Never time. exactly the same twice because of that improvisation, that limited improvisation that goes on, and the linkage is different. Hopefully the backbone does remain the same, although it's interesting. Sometimes you'll be in the midst, particularly of improvisation, and it will lead you into something that perhaps you haven't played in that spot before, but it's, it's a judgment call on your part. Does this fit? Yes, it does, you know, and probably, probably so, because the action is guiding you yeah. to what piece to use. So, uh, yes, the score would be similar, but never the same. And interestingly, of course, thinking about all those people that did this in the 1920s, if you had gone around Los Angeles and Orange County, all the different theaters then, and listened to the scores that the different organists played, no two would have been alike. <laughs> so you heard a different take on the picture every place and probably almost every time. Yeah, it reminds me a lot of the musicians of the Baroque era that would have been such fluent improvisers. And I guess what you do is really a type of historical performance as well. Um, and I know we have to let you go check the organ before the, the doors open, but um, I just wanted to know what's your favorite part of the movie? This movie? Yeah. Well, I think uh, the favorite part may be the most astonishing part in the entire thing. And it's hard to pick a place because Barrymore is so good. You know, he makes his first transition with no makeup at all. And oh, talk about when that. he yeah. fin finally gets down to the point of, of bludgeoning someone to death, and he Spoiler jumps alert. on them, and it looks, he comes up with this evil grin in the elongated head, and he looks like a vampire who's just bit somebody on the neck. Wowee, it gives you, it gives you goose, goosebumps. Wonderful. Well, we'll be definitely looking out for that spot. Thank you so much. Another hand for Clark Wilson. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. Really looking forward to it. Okay, so let's talk a little bit more about this film tonight. Has anyone seen this movie? How many have read the original Robert Louis Stevenson short story? I know, yeah, some of us in school against our will. Uh, <laughs> um, so I wanted to start by reading a review of the movie when it came out in 1920. This is from Photoplay Magazine. The reviewer writes, I have a friend a wise little friend who insists that John Barrymore's Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde will be numbered with the classic productions of the screen and years and years from now be regularly taken from its tin boxes to be run before the astonished eyes of students of the pictured drama as a perfect sample, not only of what was once accomplished by a great actor before the camera, but of what all actors of even that advanced time should strive to achieve. Very verbose writing in the 20s. So that's one popular opinion. Then he goes on to write, I have another friend, not so little, and it may be not so wise, who insists as strenuously that Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde gave her a most terrific attack of the movie blues, 
from which she has not yet recovered, nor expects to ever fully recover. Its very excellences as an acted horror, says she, have set her advising all the mothers she knows to keep their children away from it and to guard themselves accordingly as their condition and belief in prenatal influences may suggest. So I'm not trying to scare anyone off here, but basically the author is saying that this movie we're about to see is so scary that watching it could cause permanent psychological trauma and potentially even harm your unborn child. And I'm thinking, what would he have thought of The Shining? (laughs) And I love this review because it really drives home for me, like Clark was mentioning, just how viscerally the movies would affect people in this time. And um, I mean, we've seen so many special effects at this point that were basically desensitized. But we have to remember that in 1920, this is still fairly new technology. The first moving pictures premiered only 27 years earlier with Thomas Edison's kinetoscope in 1893, which just to paint a picture here was basically a giant wood cabinet, basically the size of this lectern, and it had a little peephole so that one person at a time could look in through a magnifying glass and uh, watch a short reel of a moving picture. So basically the bulkiest iPad ever. (laughs) And then, of course, in 1895, when we started projecting these reels onto big screens, Paris audiences first saw the Lumiere brothers footage of a moving train, some of you know this story, um, and proceeded to jump out of their seats, assuming that the train was going to burst through the screen and run them over. Um, So it's hard to trust new technology. I feel like I um, probably have the same panic thinking about self-driving cars. All this to say, for the 1920s, this was some pretty spooky stuff. Um, Most of us know the story of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Um, John Barrymore, the grandfather of Drew Barrymore, um, plays the handsome and virtuous Dr. Jekyll. Life is good, he's healing the poor, he's engaged to the beautiful Millicent Carew, played by Martha Mansfield. And his future father-in-law says, like, who is this nerd? He's too much of a goodie. Let's take him out to a dance club and try to corrupt him. (laughs) And this is the point where he plants a dangerous idea uh, in Jekyll's mind. He says, and you'll see this on the inner titles in the movie, a man cannot destroy the savage in him by denying his impulses. The only way to get rid of temptation is to yield to it. (laughs) So for me, this is kind of the perfect narrative to capture the zeitgeist of the 1920s. Temptation is everywhere. We're at a moment that is exploding with new ideas and technology. The radio is becoming widespread. We're recovering economically from World War I, so we have all of this cash to spend at our leisure. Um, Broadway is at its height. And this is the true beginning of the glamorous golden era of Hollywood. I know we 
Southern Californians take a lot of pride in being the center of the film industry, but before the 1920s, it was all in New York. Um, and this tension between traditionalism and modernity is felt in music as well. Jazz is exploding onto the scene in a very rebellious spirit. So we've talked a little bit about the evolution of film. I thought just to give us some music reference points, uh, we could listen to a couple things. Here is a popular song from 1893. It's called After the Ball by George J. Gaskin, and this came out not long after the original Robert Louis Stevenson novel premiered. So let's hear a little of that. A little maiden climbs an old man's knee, Okay, so now let's fast forward 25 years. Here is uh, Louis Armstrong's orchestra in stuff. Makes me want to bust out the moonshine. Um, <laughs> so it's a very exciting time to be alive when this movie came out. And importantly, we're right at the very beginning of Prohibition. <laughs> so already, so many Americans are living their own kind of Jekyll and Hyde double life, <laughs> projecting the appearance of morality in public while succumbing to their hedonistic desires behind closed doors. All this to say the film really resonated with people. This was not the only adaptation of the story, there, but definitely the most famous. It was a smash hit. Supposedly a door and two windows were broken by the crowds that tried to see it on its first showing in New York. And for the star of the movie, the incredible John Barrymore, it was the role that really cemented him as one of the great actors of his generation. And for those who've seen it, it's, he's really fabulous. He was playing uh, Richard III on Broadway at the time, and a lot of historians feel that his portrayal of Hyde in this film tonight was drawn a lot on the despicable nature of that famous Shakespearean character. And it just blows my mind thinking about the schedule. He's filming Jekyll and Hyde during the day. He's doing eight shows a week of Richard III on Broadway. His married lover just became pregnant with his child and is trying to leave her husband. I thought I was busy. <laughs> and I hate to say he did actually have a nervous breakdown later that year. But um, getting back to the film, as Clark was mentioning, one of the most iconic scenes that's referenced in uh, cinema history 
is when Barrymore, as Jekyll first transforms into Hyde, and I was rereading the original short story this week, um, and when you see the film tonight, I think it's pretty clear that Barrymore had been reading it too. So here's a short excerpt from the story. This is from the perspective of Jekyll's colleague who's watching the transformation. He puts the glass to his lips and drank at one gulp. A cry followed. He reeled, staggered, clutched at the table and held on, staring with injected eyes, gasping with open mouth. And as I looked there came a change. He seemed to swell. His face became suddenly black and the features seemed to melt and alter. And the next moment I had sprung to my feet and leaped back against the wall. My arm raised to shield me from that prodigy. My mind submerged in terror. So you can see how well, in hearing the text, this immediately translates to silent film. It's so visual, it's so physical. Um, and it's interesting to note that Barrymore, who came from a large family of actors, actually was trying to avoid becoming an actor at all costs. He wanted to be a visual artist, and within this medium, he was particularly interested in depicting the grotesque. And so I think even though he did end up getting dragged into becoming one of the best actors in history, um, he does this in the acting medium so skillfully. And um, as Clark mentioned, the initial transformation, and you can watch for this tonight, um, he does without makeup, only by contorting the features of his face. And of course, over the course of the movie, he gets more and more prosthetics and they add things, and that's the one that's gonna hurt your unborn child. Um, but he starts off just with his own um, skill of, of acting. And so look out for that scene. It's towards the beginning of the movie. Um, so I'll let us get going to our seats. But what is so interesting to me in rereading the original text about Stevenson's description of Hyde and why I think this character really appealed so much to Barrymore and the audiences of the 1920s is that he's not your average wretched monster. You know, he's not bad in the full sense of the word, but he's this symbol of indulgence, of freedom, of liberation from the shackles of polite society, just as flappers like myself are always thinking about. Um, so I will leave you with one more quote from the original novella. This is a first-person account of Jekyll turning into Hyde. Um, Greg, if we could dim the lights a little bit. <clears throat> the most racking pangs succeeded. A grinding of the bones deadly nausea, and a horror of the spirit that cannot be exceeded at the hour of birth or death. Then these agonies began swiftly to subside, and I came to myself as if out of a great sickness. There was something strange in my sensations, something indescribably new and from its very novelty, incredibly sweet. I felt younger, lighter, happier in body. 
Within, I was conscious of a heady recklessness, a current of disordered sensual images running like a mill race in my fancy, a solution of the bonds of obligation, an unknown but not an innocent freedom of the soul. I knew myself at the first breath of this new life to be more wicked, tenfold more wicked, sold a slave to my original evil, and the thought in that moment braced and delighted me like wine. So we're in for a great evening. Keep a tight grasp on your personal morality and enjoy the wonderful playing of Clark Wilson. Happy Halloween.